Hello and welcome to this edition of Podularity for the week ending the 16th of October 2009. My name is George Miller and this edition of the programme is sponsored by Blackwell Online. You'll find all the books covered in these programmes on their site at blackwell.co.uk as well as several million more. My guest today is Amanda Vickery, who's Professor of Modern British History at Royal Holloway University of London and author of The Gentleman's Daughter, Women's Lives in Georgian England, for which she won the Wolfson Prize. Amanda published a new book this week, Behind Closed Doors, At Home in Georgian England, which looks at what home meant to the Georgians, both physically and psychologically. The book has already attracted very favourable attention. Francis Wilson, writing in the Sunday Times at the weekend, said, We see the Georgians at home as we have never seen them before in this groundbreaking book. It's both scholarly and terrifically good fun. Amanda writes early on in the book that interiors do not easily offer up their secrets. So I began by asking her to tell me why that is and what she did in order to unlock those secrets. I think when I embarked on a project which was about the history of home and about interiors, physical and psychological interiors, I thought it would be quite a straightforward project that I would go into archives and that people would talk, describe their interiors and their problems, their difficulties uh, and their feelings and that you know, I would be able to knit that, you know, quilt that very beautifully into a book. But uh, the more record offices I went to, the more clear it became that people don't tend to write about their homes. Just as today, you know, when people sit down to write something, you tend to write about events. You don't write about the things that you take for granted. And that is absolutely the case for past records. So the problem is that the history of home hides in plain sight. It's so fundamental as to go without saying. An example of this is uh, I was always very interested in capturing how men felt about home. And so I did a big survey of the archives and wrote to all the archives in England and Wales asking, uh, you know, what diaries do you have which comment on domestic life? And I got one letter back from uh, Cardiff saying, we've got a great diary in which a man, you know, debates and discusses, you know, his ideas about domestic life. So I went all the way to Cardiff and discovered that this, this diary of this Methodist preacher, all he says about home are the words at home, Monday at home, <laughs> Tuesday at home, Wednesday at home. So therefore, it occurred to me, well, I'm just going to have to change tack. And I thought I'd have to be more versatile and and adaptable and think, well, what are the things which are likely to make men particularly, say, reflect on what home has been to them? And I thought, well, it would have to be some sort of catastrophe. And so then I started looking, for instance, at widower's diaries, and suddenly it all comes pouring out. Widower's talk you know, are prolix about the difficulties of life at home. In a way, that casts a sidelight on the silent satisfactions of, of married life for men. Because they're drawing attention to what they currently lack. Quite. Another example might be bachelors. Bachelors' uh, diaries and autobiographies are full of their longings, really, for um, a sort of centred domestic life. So, you know, they don't have well, particularly if they're lodgers, they don't have a, kind of, uh, a settled home. And so they reflect on what is missing in their life. And they actually ruminate on a fantasy of a future domestic life, you know, from which you can extract, you know, what, what are the, what's at the core of the idea of domesticity for men. Other examples of approaches I had to take, I thought, well, when would men and women talk about what they believed home to be as couples? 
you know, they'd have to be separated in some way, otherwise you wouldn't find the material. And so I looked at I, courtship correspondence at the moment when it's kind of coming to a final head, the making of the marriage. And then it became clear that setting up home is absolutely central to, well, an idea of setting up home, what that home's to be, is central to the solidification of a courtship and the making of a marriage. And that's when men lay out, you know, this is the kind of house I can offer you. And then the women come back and say, well, I don't like it like that. I think the kitchen should be like this. So they, therefore, in their letters, they detail what their expectations are of married life. But also, it became clear to me that it's part of the solidification of the match. And in working out their ideas about what the home is to be, women are testing the generosity of their men and the, women are, the, the men are assessing the domesticity of their women. And it, it's through that process of, ne- of negotiation around homes that the union itself is kind of evolving and becoming concrete. And the home then becomes a kind of expression of that match, doesn't it? I think you say this, it, it's, it's sort of expressed and it's celebrated and it's made concrete. And I suppose that's, that, that's something we may sort of take for granted now. But was that something which was coming into being in this period? I think successful marriages solidify themselves, celebrate themselves and express themselves in their homes and in, in the decoration of their homes. I think one of the reasons why I wanted to stress that is a lot of the literature on consumerism has uh, has argued about, oh, well, do people consume to keep up with the Joneses? Is it all about status? Is it all about occupational identity? Is it about where you live regionally? Is it about your attitude to novelty? But this aspect about matrimony seems to have been thoroughly missed. But at the same time, as well as the household and the decoration of the interior, as well as it expressing successful matrimony, it can also express the reverse. After all, separation and divorce are the literal separation of the spoils and the, you know, the divvying up of the marriage. And also when visitors go round houses and see, well, if they see an air of disorder, if, if they see um, clashing decoration, or if they see decoration which is too depressing and old-fashioned, all of those commentators take as signs that a woman is at bay in the household. And so they read in interiors, it's a way to gauge the success of the marriage for nosy observers. Now, for most people, their idea of the Georgian interior will have been shaped by visiting National Trust properties. And I think you issue a a caveat in the book that 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 may be a misleading impression that they gain from going around uh, generously proportioned and nicely presented National Trust properties. Why is that? I think when you go around a National Trust property, for one thing, you go often in an odd circulation around the house. So you go around the house perhaps from the back servant's entry or something, not in the way you're supposed to march through the house when it was set up. So often it's hard to kind of understand what it is the house was trying to say at the time in terms of status to you, the visitor. But also areas are kind of roped off. It's it's a museum. It feels very much like a museum and there's no sense that you can kind of sit down at any of the tables. By the same token, they're absolutely empty of life and neat and tidy and they don't smell and there's no no noise of a household. All of those things are absolutely kind of central to what it was like to live in even quite grand 
18th century houses, women's letters are full of complaints about how awful it is, how freezing, this kind of stiff-backed ceremony, the noise, people coming in, a lack of privacy. And so I, I'd argue that one of the reasons why you get this proliferation of little rooms in the 18th century, which women particularly like, dressing rooms and closets, is a response to the, you know, the endless publicity and the racket of life at home and the sheer lack of privacy. There's great obsession in the 18th century with locking keys, boxes, secret drawers, private desks. For the rich, there is an assumption that there will always be people trafficking through their rooms. And locksmiths advise employers. They say, well, you know, if it's your own fault if you leave any of your possessions kind of lying about and unlocked. You have put temptation before your servants, so you principally are to blame. The onus is on you to hide these precious things away from the gaze of these susceptible servants. I thought it was quite poignant, actually, in the book that at the other end of the spectrum, for, for the servant, home could actually boil down to their box, a box with a lock with a few treasured possessions, and that was what the idea of home actually meant to them. Yeah, I think we often forget that um, for servants, they're, you know, they're overwhelmingly female, but young men as well. They're moving on, on average, once a year. They have no settled home of their own. So the only thing they tend to have is a locking box. And the box itself becomes a very symbol, the great symbol of service, you know, that is your box. And so they tend to have a kind of padlock on, on them. Some servants' boxes are decorated, a nice bit of wallpaper, and that's where you would keep your, you know, your second set of clothes, what small valuables you have. And so they represent the, those personal things of your very own. And I think as long as you have those, you know, you have the equipment um, for best clothes, for going out, for performing, your identity for, you know, courting, and also, you know, perhaps a place to keep the one or two treasures that you have, perhaps, you know, a teapot, a a silver teaspoon, a locket, a present from home, perhaps a letter if you're literate. So I find the idea of those boxes very, very poignant. You can see them actually in paintings, in representations. In Hogarth's uh, The Harlot's Progress, when Mole Hackabout comes to London, she has a box, you can see it with, and she's got a goose and all these signs that she's come up from the country. And then in the very final scene, when Mole lies dying, her box is open in the foreground and being rifled by a servant. So as she dies, you know, the last remnants of her her privacy really are being rifled also. So I suppose one of the, the things your book is trying to do is to repopulate the Georgian house if we've become used to this idea of them as rather empty, austere, bare places. When I was very struck by the fact that there would be spinsters in a, in a little room here or a sublet there or servants sleeping here, there and everywhere. So it's a really sort of attempt to repopulate the house. I think if you look, think about the interiors of um, Georgian townhouses, they'd be teeming, like um, a hive, really, or a, or a, almost a rabbit warren. We have this idea that, you know, we've got these pristine Georgian terraces and you know, with their immaculate exteriors. We have this idea of a kind of perfect Georgian uniformity. But inside, the majority of London houses were divided up into lodging rooms. On the ground floor, that would probably be the landlady and her family. The showier tenant had the first floor front room, perhaps less well-off tenants, would be towards the back and on the second floor. And the very, very poorest would be either in the basement 
or in the garret. Hacks traditionally starve in the garret, so the poet's always in the drafty garret. And then also all those individual rooms kind of tend to lock. Sometimes the landlady has a key, sometimes she doesn't have a key. But you'd be aware that there'd be you know, people tramping up and down those stairs all the time. You'd be hearing the din through the walls. It's not unknown for uh, families to come to an arrangement with the house next door and knock, knock, knock a passageway through on the first floor. So it might look like you've got a kind of pristine terrace from the front, but inside you've got all sorts of odd connections. Another thing that 18th century Londoners are very aware of, which we are not, is how a house could be accessed, not just by the front door, and but the back door and through the windows, but also by another network over the rooftops called the LEDs. So you really get, if you read, particularly if you read criminal records, and the Old, Old Bailey records, you get a sense of a kind of three-dimensional city accessible over the root, rooftops as well as by the streets and by water. You've mentioned locks, and I suppose what they relate to is, is privacy. And it seemed to me that something which we would recognise as a modern sense of privacy was one of the things which was coming into being in this period? Well, I think early modern historians would actually say that just because privacy was hard to achieve in the 16th and 17th centuries doesn't mean it wasn't sought after. So I think in the 18th century, there are ideas of privacy which we would recognise, things around the defence of private property, but also the idea of kind of seclusion and withdrawal and intimacy but there is a very strong sense that, that those are privileges and that they're quite hard to achieve and that they're bought with money. So if you are, you know, who has privacy in an 18th century house? If you are the servant of the house, like one hard-pressed young maid, you might not have a regular bed of your own. You might have to bed down with the children of the house. Servants often go to sleep last of all in the house. They're last, uh, last to bed and first up. Sometimes they have to sleep in little trundle beds, which are across the front door and things like that. So in a way, they're the kind of guard dog of the house. So they would hide their personal things in a box, which they would lock, but that box would have to sit in a public room, probably in the kitchen. They don't have, they very rarely have a room of their own. Or, you know, they had to carry their valuables on them in their, uh, their pockets, which are these absolutely capacious mm. pockets which are tied on under skirts. So, you know, the clever probably kept a lot of what they really valued on them at all times and then perhaps slept with their pockets under their pillow at night. So, you know, what privacy means then for a, a kind of a young servant maid of 20 and what it means for the master of the house are quite different things. The master of the house is the one most likely to have the biggest bed and, you know, to have a settled place to go to sleep with his own room. And, you know, that, ma well, we still think of it as a master bedroom. The master bedroom would be the least likely to be used for public purposes. So it is clearly a privilege which is um, replete with power. What you describe is a sort of sense of precariousness for a lot of people about what home means to them. And I suppose that, that therefore elevates the desirability of having a, a locked door and a, a structure that you can call your home. And, and you say already by 1700, uh, an Englishman's home is his castle was a, was a hoary old cliche, but multiple factors must have kind of reinforced that cliche in people's minds. 
Well, the Englishman's home is the castle becomes even more entrenched in English law in the in the 18th century as a consequence of uh, new legislation, things like. Um, Theft from lodging rooms, that becomes a criminal offence, but theft by servants. So all these things are attempts to defend kind of the the home turf. And they're a response to this feeling that particularly London is facing new forms of criminality as a consequence of commercial expansion. So it's about kind of defending the boundaries of your home and what you consider to be your own private property at a time of galloping urbanisation and commercial growth. So you get this feeling of kind of sprawling growth through the 17th and into the 18th centuries and laws trying to kind of keep step with that and defend really kind of landlords' rights because uh, what was known as the bloody code, that expanding code of criminal legislation, defends the rights of property owners first and foremost. So, you know, that is what it's interested in. The Englishman's home is his castle, the English man. Would it, though, be fair to say that along with this commercialisation, hand in hand perhaps with this commercialisation, the period sees what might be called a feminisation of the interior space? I think the late 17th and the 18th century sees a kind of opening up, really, of the of the more ordinary home through social customs like visiting. This becomes a very kind of developed social institution towards the end of the 17th and into the 18th centuries. Also the, the spread of the idea of politeness, the currency of the ideas of the Scottish Enlightenment, whereby enlightenment is expressed through conversation and, and that men can be judged by the way they treat women. So instead of a modern, up-to-date man expressing himself through his tyranny over women, he actually expresses his superiority by being able to kind of honour them in the drawing room. Now, all of those factors, I would argue, raise the status of drawing room conversation and a social life at home. And the effect of that is to open up the home to outsiders, to, to judgment and to social traffic. And that does indeed, I would argue, lead to a feminization of the Georgian home. There are clear demarcations over spheres of influence. So men tended to take charge of hard things like silverware and mahogany furniture, and women tended to be responsible for soft things like textiles or frangible things like ceramics. And that, you say, laid down a pattern which we're still living with today, a sort of gendering of the, of the, the responsibilities within the home. Yeah, I was, I was able to get at the gendering of consumer responsibilities by comparing three very rare sets of his and hers accounts. Because often a lot of the research on consumption sort of looks at, well, this is how the women consume, and here in another part of the forest is the way the men consume. But I was interested in what's the interrelationship between those two. If you have an active husband and wife, who chooses what? The problem is, though, that it's very hard to get behind what's said in a ledger. Women may very well have been choosing mahogany furniture, but it's seen to be a high-status good it's expensive and you can see that often traders would want to deal officially with the man of the house because women themselves are not technically responsible for their debts in common law. So that's a commercial convention which itself masks a universe really of gender negotiation. 
there are clearly there are some products though that that men are fascinated by and women it seems to me are not chief amongst those is the tackle for horses and transport i was bemused stunned and perplexed by the amount of horse equipment that you find in bills addressed to men all these strangely named things you know surcingles i've still no idea what a surcingle is hundreds and hundreds of little bits of metal and brown leather and that the kind of fascination around those objects for men seems to have gone kind of unnoticed although having said that it's sometimes in trading accounts is it's called horse millinery which actually gives us some sense of the kind of pleasure of the littleness of the features and suggests you know it might suggest that it's the equivalent really of ladies millinery because there's lots of jokes about how many little things there are in a milliner's shop and these are all these tiny little etceteras that go into the fabrication of femininity but so i think the direct equivalent really of the milliner is the saddler and the farrier let me turn to wallpaper now because i was i was fascinated by what you had to say about wallpaper and how you made the wallpaper speak as it were because there's so much is understood or implicit in the way people choose and buy wallpaper. Yes, I think that, you know, it it makes kind of political historians laugh that I've devoted so much attention to wallpaper. And clearly wallpaper is a superficial thing. You know, it's all about surface. By the 19th century, if there's any reference to wallpapering in a novel, it's a sign that the person doing the wallpapering is a shallow, uh, meretricious person who uh, is only interested in veneer. Uh, But that's not the case for the 18th century. Uh, Wallpaper is associated with kind of wholesomeness, cleanliness, and it's it's a bargain. And that's one of the things which I think makes it, uh, made it so useful to me really in trying to get at what the more ordinary kind of middling consumers feel about decoration. So wallpaper is comparatively cheap. It is not a lifetime investment. So it means you can change it pretty regularly. It's very responsive to fashion. It's not unlike women in the 18th century who use accessories to transform a garment to keep up with fashion without having to spend a fortune. You can do just the same with wallpaper. But it was fascinating to me in the in all the letters that I read, thousands of them to the uh, London wallpaper, Joseph Trollope and Co. When people talk about wallpaper, even though you might think that this is a sort of mere superficial decoration, they're obsessed with the propriety, the decorum, and the morality of their choices. So it became clear to me that there's a whole kind of system about decoration which has been lost to us. So whenever they talk about, you know, I want, I want a paper that's neat and pretty in a trellis pattern or neat and not too showy. So there's this very strong sense from middling consumers that, that your choices have to be appropriate, appropriate to your status, appropriate to the room, appropriate to the position of your house, is it in the country? So you've got a sense that underlying it was a whole system of understanding which is as much about status as it is about fashion. I, I love the quote you gave from some handbook for decorators, which said, and I, I paraphrase, if, if a client chooses a wallpaper which is above his station, you must sort of tactfully point out, you know, there's a more appropriate paper for his, <laughs> you know, his position in life. Well, yes, it was a, a widely accepted truism that um, magnificence was for aristocrats and that elegance 
elegance and neatness is for the genteel and middling and a sort of neat neat decency was an appropriate mode of decoration for the respectable working poor. So there's a very clear understanding that you have to know your place, whether that be in the clothes that you wear or in the colours that you choose for your wallpaper. One of the things that surprised me so much is that the dominance of green. Mm. So green is obviously thoroughly inoffensive. And this was confirmed for me when I was reading Jane Austen's letters. And she was saying she'd been around an exhibition and she'd seen a painting at the Royal Academy, which in her mind's eye was Jane Bennett. And she knew she was Jane Bennett because she was wearing green. And she assumed that green would be her favorite color. And after all, Jane Bennett is one of literature's mildest heroines. So green is perfectly therapeutic. It's never the wrong choice. You mentioned how all sorts of moral assumptions could be implicit in your choice of wallpaper. And I was very struck when you said that descriptions of women often tended to go seamlessly from the description of the silk dress to the textiles, to the curtains or whatever. It was like they were all part of some Mm. kind of continuum. And the woman was sort of at once being reified by being incorporated into this universe. But at the same time, her her soft furnishings were being moralised, really. It was a sort of expression of what kind of, if she was a woman of good character. That was very interesting. I think women's morals have long been judged on the nature of, and the the kind of wholesomeness of the home. A well-ordered interior redounds to the credit of the mistress who runs it. And you can tell that in the ambiguous meaning of terms like slut. People run... In the 18th century, as of now, I think, people move very quickly from imagining a woman as dirty to imagine her as sexually loose. I was reading that Boswell likened a woman who'd, uh, he thought, sold himself in marriage to an ugly but rich man. He said she revolted him and made him, put him in mind of a greasy tablecloth. So that sort of objectifying of women and relating them to kind of the objects of the interior about this, you know, very, very deep association between women and, you know, the cleanliness, the virtue, the wholesomeness and the beauty of the home. It's quite an old, um, well, it's an ancient belief that the good woman has to decorate and beautify her home. The good woman of Proverbs is expected to do that. So that commitment absolutely is biblical. Yeah, it's archaic and it's venerable. So I think the 18th century adds new layers of kind of gloss and sophistication to this. And I think that men take huge satisfaction from being, you know, married to a woman who looks well in their drawing room and and that her beautiful Rococo silks will be of a piece with the beautiful Rococo curtains and that she does not look out of place. But I think it's it's worth remembering that for men that's also it has that has a kind of strong sexual allure. You know, the the kind of mise en scène at home is all about the you know the allure of having a pretty wife who can organise your organise the household in a way that your your attention is not drawn to any of its difficulties and that its prettinesses are readily apparent to any of your visitors. And it's interesting you say mise en scène because, as you were saying earlier, with with visiting becoming a, a cultural phenomenon. It does become a, a place of display. It does become a stage set. And you, you say that the Georgians were quite adept at addressing the stage set quite quickly mm-hmm. and changing scenes when, when required to. 
It's a long-standing belief that a man's house is the theatre of his hospitality. But I think in the 18th century, when there's, they're kind of quite space-strapped, even the rich live in, tend to live in kind of leased lodgings, they can make the, make the best use of what limited space is available to them. You can see from upholsterers' ledgers that there's a, a, a vibrant market in adaptable furniture. So in cupboards that let down and produce a master bed or in tables that you can turn up and they become, then they become a linen press later. They conjure to me this vision of people scurrying about rearranging their room and uh, tipping it up, the guests are here. But by the same token, even a poorer woman in lodgings, you can imagine by bring, whisking out her tea tray and a colourful bedspread and, you know, some nice linens on a little tea table. She has staged the interior for guests. And I think that it's the arrangement of the props that uh, register politeness for a lot of people, not necessarily the room, because, you know, you have no choice. Most families don't have the space to have a kind of unsullied shrine to politeness. They've got to set it up, you know, and get out their best china when their best visitors come. Mm Maybe finally, Amanda, I could just ask you what you think the Georgians passed on to the Victorians in terms of assumptions about what the domestic interior is supposed to express. I think the creation of the idea of taste, which was excitingly novel in the 18th century, is a departure which is revolutionary. Taste is a word of such bland good manners to today. It takes quite an effort to imagine that that was once a radically new concept. And it was a, a way of rethinking and understanding culture, manners, consumer choices, ways of behaving. I think as you move into the 19th century, then all sorts of institutions develop to somehow police taste. In the 18th century, there's a lot of confusion. What is good taste? Who has taste? Is it me? No, perhaps it's not me. But by the, for the Victorians, you get things like the beginning of the art colleges and famously the Victorian Albert Museum. When it first opened, the Victorian Albert Museum had a gallery of bad taste with a a series of objects so that people could go around and know, you know, it's a set of rules so people can uh, find out exactly where they're going wrong. So I think that it's, it's still, in flux in the 18th century, but by the 19th century it also gets kind of overlaid with a much stronger Christian set of overtones as well. You know, taste is fused to a much more overt vocabulary of morality. I think that the other thing I would say is that ideas of, of decorum that you should, that everybody should behave according to their place in society and decorate according to their place in society and that each room should be decorated according to their function, that system, which is in place in the 18th century, becomes ever more Byzantine for the Victorians and it becomes much more kind of rigid and full of sort of the tiniest, tiniest kind of rules and assumptions. You can see that really if you look at, I mean, I've looked at wallpaper for the early 19th century, but if you look sort of 30, 40 years later in the wallpaper sample book of uh, Cowton and Sons, which is in the Victorian Albert Museum, the servants' rooms are all brown. It's quite clear that's what you do. You put brown wallpaper in the servants' room. So you can almost read an entire class society in the colours that they, they choose for the ladies' bedroom and, you know, the servants' back passages.
Amanda Vickery. Behind Closed Doors, at home in Georgian England, is published by Yale University Press in hardback, and you'll find it on Blackwell's online at blackwell.co.uk. Remember, you can subscribe to Podularity on iTunes. It's free and easy. Just go to iTunes and type Podularity in the search box. Or go to podularity.com and click on the iTunes link on the home page. I hope you'll join me again next time for another in-depth conversation about books. And until then, thank you for listening, and goodbye.